Well, last week we started a new preaching series called Healthy Relationships, and I'm, if, you're, if you're somebody who pays attention to this, I'm actually diverging a bit from the lectionary readings. We're still certainly in the Easter season, but I'm looking at these concepts that are related to relationships, both uh, relationships in, with Christians, relationships outside of the church with the broader community. I'm expecting that what we say in this series will help us in our personal relationships, in our families, marriage, if you're married, and interacting with other people. Hopefully this will be universal in its appeal. And last week I started us off by saying that relationships are the most important thing in life, first with God, then with others. That is our highest priority. That's what's most important. And Jesus summarized that when he was asked about the teaching of the law, and he said, the greatest law, the greatest commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there's a second one like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, today I want to talk to you about the third commandment. And by that, I don't mean don't take the name of the Lord in vain, which would be the third of the 10 commandments. I mean what I'm going to call, no one else calls it this, what I'm going to call the third greatest commandment, where Jesus raised the bar even a little higher, where he said, as I have loved you, so you should love one another. That's the commandment that he gave in the upper room. And I want to point out that it is a new commandment. He said, a new commandment I give to you. And I also want to point out that it's a commandment, not a suggestion. And he doesn't say, I want you to try as hard as you can to love like I do. No, he lays it out there as a commandment. As I have loved you, so you should love one another. It is a commandment, and he really raises the bar for us. Because it's one thing to love your neighbor as yourself, right? Kind of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, which is a good thing. However, he raises it even higher when he says, I want you to love one another the way that I loved you. Which, of course, asks the question, how did Jesus love us? And what did that look like? Well, Romans 5.8 summarizes it very well, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the kind of love that Christ have, has for us is the kind that is self-sacrificial. He's willing to die out of love for us. And he does it while we're not worthy, while we're still sinners. The way that Christ loves is he loves the unloveliness for the sake of that person. He does it while we're still sinners, while we're, we're counted as his enemies, while we're in rebellion against him. He goes and does something on our behalf and wins our hearts with that. And he places no conditions on it. It's unconditional love. It's love done for the sake of the beloved. He loves us despite our unloveliness. Now, in this context of his teaching, he's in the upper room. This is right before the the passion and death and resurrection. And he has already sent Judas out. It says when he went out, that's talking about Judas. After Judas goes out to betray him, Satan has entered his heart, he leaves. Then it's Jesus and the 11. And that's where he says, now a new commandment I give to you. And he loved some unlovely things in that upper room. One, he washed the disciples' feet, including Judas. And two, he suffered a betrayer right up to the very end by blessing him to the very end until Satan entered his heart. He gave him a prominent seat around the table, close enough that Jesus could hand him a piece of bread from his dish. And he gave him every opportunity. He washed the feet of his own betrayer. This is how Jesus loves He loves despite the unworthiness of the person he's expressing that love for. In his teaching in Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, 
What credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be called sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Boy, we hear that and I'm immediately cut to, heart, cut to my heart and I think how often do my acts of service have some self-interest motivating them? Every time, I think pretty much every time, there's some, something that I'm going to get in return, almost always. It is such a difficult teaching. It feels impossible. But frankly, with God, what is impossible becomes possible. Now, this morning, I also picked a reading from the Old Testament from an unlikely place because it's a beautiful picture of a self-sacrificial love from the book of Ruth, which is hard to find because you, unless you know your Bible really well, it's kind of sneaky. It's right in there after the Pentateuch, but before we get into the Samuel and the Kings. And it's in the time of the judges. This is before the prophet Samuel anoints Saul and David and all those guys. This is before that. When the judges were ruling, there was a woman named Naomi who was married to, lived in Bethlehem in that area, was married to a Jewish man, had two sons, and a famine happens. And they run out of food, and so they have to leave the land, and they go east. They go past, they go into what is modern-day Jordan now, close to the Arabian Desert. They head to the east, outside of the, the Dead Sea area, and live there because there's some food for them there. And they're there long enough that her, Naomi's two sons end up marrying women, the area is called Moab, Moabite women who are foreigners. And a terrible thing happens where all three of the men die in the course of time. So Naomi is widowed, and then both of her daughters-in-law are widowed. So now you've got an Israelite widow and two Moabite widows with her who are not, you know, biologically are not her daughters. They're not even of the same nation. And she says, well, I hear they have some barley and food and grain back in the land of Israel. I'm going to go back there and encourages them to go back to their families of origin. And one of them does, but the other one, Ruth, refuses to. Out of love for Naomi, she says, no, I will go. I will go where your people are, and your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And she refuses to let her go. And it's incredible because there's so little gain in there for Ruth. I mean, what does a widow have to offer her? And she's going back to a place where she's lost her inheritance, and you have to understand the way that the rules worked in ancient Israel is that through the male head of the household, the land was passed in perpetuity down through the generations. But because both of her sons had died, there was no land rights. There was no way they could farm or make a living or have any access to, I mean, they, were, they would be beggars. They'd be destitute or find an extended family to help them, which actually is what happens. And the story is a beautiful picture of how God blesses Ruth and for her love for Naomi. And it's included in the scripture because she ends up being the, the mother of the great-grandfather of King David, who, in whose line Jesus comes. So she's a significant figure and is not even an Israelite. And it shows God's love for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And it shows a picture of a self-sacrificial kind of love. And it's beautiful. And I think that's why God included it in the scriptures. And I look at that picture. And again, I think, how self-interested am I usually when I'm doing good for other people? I'm often looking at what I'm going to get from it. Christians and those who are still skeptic about the Christian faith look at stories of self-sacrifice with admiration. 
You don't have to be a Christian to appreciate someone who gives great personal expense to go and love someone else. In fact, all the great stories have that element in them. The best movies, the best novels, everything has some element of that in it. And it resonates with humanity because it is the great story in which we live. It is a, it is a, a picture of who God is. God who lays down his life out of love for those who are not even yet his friends. Such love is the mark of a Christian. And such love is impossible in human strength. We look at that and we think, I don't know how I could possibly love others the way that Jesus loved me. And the command to do that is so hard for us that it requires us to keep going to God for the power. And when we don't, we can't. So I had an example last week. I don't, I don't often get outside of the Christian community as much as I'd like. It's a great joy of being a pastor that I get to be around faithful people all the time. And so I have to work to break outside of the church walls, so to speak. And I had an interaction with somebody who's not in our community here. And I was just so offended by this man's selfishness and self-interest and the way that he was hurting other people with his actions. And I was complaining about this to one of our staff members who said, yeah, we need to be praying for him. And immediately I was cut to the heart because my instinct in the flesh was to attack that, show him why those are not the right ways to behave and uh, fix him, right? That was my instinct was fix the problem. And, and then I realized I haven't been praying for him. I'm not expressing love for him. I'm just trying to fix the problem. It's impossible to do this without God's help, without his power. I, I read, um, there's a really great book called The Emotional, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Peter Scazzaro. I commend it to you if you want to read up on this. In there, he, he tells a little snippet from the brothers Karamazov, uh, Dostoevsky's uh, novel. And he recounts a rich woman who comes to a monk and the woman is asking for proof that God exists. And the monk replies and says, there, there is no proof except active love. At this, she sort of lets go of the, the proof for or against God and softens a bit and begins to say, you know, I've actually had a dream of serving people and giving up the wealthy life and joining the sisters of mercy and caring for those in need. But then as I think about it, I recognize how ungrateful those people would be. They'd complain that their soup is too cold and their bed is too hard and they wouldn't be thankful enough. And so I've given up the dream. And then the monk says, love in practice is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. She had romanticized the idea of serving other people and thought about how great it would make her feel and then realized it wouldn't make her feel good. It's hard. It's really hard to do this. Now, I want to make a distinction about some, some of Jesus' teachings here. Something is important. In the second greatest commandment, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And when asked who his neighbor was, he goes on and tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, which we'll look at in a few weeks. But that, that parable shows that your neighbor is anyone who is human. We are neighbors in our common humanity, faith or no faith. If you're a person, you are made in the image of God, and therefore you are a brother and sister in one sense. And then there's another distinction, though, in this teaching in the upper room, where he is speaking specifically to the Christian community, the 11, and he says, love one another as I have loved you. So he is speaking to love that is supposed to exist within the church, and he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the Galatians, says this, so then we have the opportunity, when we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
People, by God's design, are supposed to look in and see the Christian community expressing Christ-like love, and when they do that, it will be proof that God is among us. Because as I said, in our own strength, it's impossible. And the whole world sits up and takes notice. When Christians love like Christ love, it is so attractive, they go, well, how do you do that? And the answer is, I don't. Christ does it through me, is what God is about. So what's at stake here? Our witness, our witness as his disciples. And he does, it's a command, but it has an if in there. If you do this, the world will see and know that you are my disciples. So it's a command we can choose not to obey. You can be a Christian and not obey that command and not love like Christ loves. But he wants us to because our witness is at stake. He wants the world to see that, to see his power at work in the community of faith. In the beginning of Acts chapter 1, right before Jesus ascends into heaven, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. There's that word again about witnessing. You will be my witnesses. It's because of the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us that we will be able to do this. What I find so interesting about it, even though it's frightening to think about how to love somebody with no self-interest and to love like Christ loved, and to see that in the community. When I think about that, what is so amazing is the idea that God is making me and you and all who would take up the command into a new kind of person. People get tired of just living for themselves all the time. It's shallow, and they long for something greater. You want to be part of a bigger thing. I want to be able to love like Christ does. I want to see the Holy Spirit's power working through me to bless others, not for what I'm going to get in return, but for what it will do for them. There is a longing that is in us to be like that. And you know what? It's a picture of the future. That is how the heavenly city works. That's the future for all who are in Christ. And that community, I mean, I, I can't even fully imagine it. You can, no one, nobody can imagine what it's going to be like when people live like that, when our hearts are fixed and are like that. So where do we begin, though? Because we're not there yet. We're still here. Where do we begin? Well, I think, one, we have to recognize that this is a commandment. This is a new commandment Jesus has given. He expects Christians to love the faithful community the way that he loved them. And he expects Christians to love all people as neighbors. Love them as your, love your neighbor as yourself. I think we have to recognize that and to recognize it's possible with God. What's impossible in our own strength is actually possible with God's power. Second, I think we need to receive his love thankfully. We have to be grateful for the love that he has expressed for us. That means we have to think about our unloveliness and recognize that Christ was loving us even when we were not worthy of that love and be, and be thankful. It's the same way forgiveness works. I can only forgive someone who sins against me because Christ has forgiven me. What he has done has empowered me to be able to pass that along. Same thing with love. He has loved me because he first loved me, therefore I can love someone else. And then finally, Pay attention to the smaller, nearer things to start. You don't have to give up your nationality and go with a widow to a foreign land. That, that's a big, beautiful picture. But you can start with the closer, simple things. Your family, your marriage, your kids. That's where it can be worked out. I came across this um, portion of the writings of William Wordsworth, and he says, this may be the best portion of a good man's life. His little, nameless, unremembered acts of kindness and love. It starts in the small things. I mean, it literally is about emptying the dishwasher. As silly as that sounds, it's in the little things, loving for the sake of the other, 
that we learn to love in the bigger things. And now may God empower us to do that so that we have healthy relationships and the world outside will look in and see that God is among us and will come and give glory to him. May he empower that in our lives. Let's pray for that right now. Lord, this is a tough teaching that you've given your followers. But Lord, with you, all things are possible. Father, we hold up to you the circumstances right now in our lives that are unlovely. The things, the people, the situations that we struggle to love. I pray for your power to help us. I pray that you would forever make us thankful for the way that you have first loved us. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.